Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative people on the forefront of conservation, ecology, birding, and environmental education. If you have a fascination with the natural world, this podcast is for you. My promise to you is that you'll not only learn what my guests have accomplished, but also how and why. And I also promise that you'll learn plenty of fascinating things about the nature that surrounds us. So give it a listen, and if you truly care about the environment and enjoyed what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or your favorite service, and share this episode with a friend. Thank you. My guest today is Dr. Justin Engel, creator of the podcast series Fireline, which is a deep dive into the realities of wildfire in the western United States. Justin is Associate Professor of Marketing at the University of Montana in Missoula, He earned his Ph.D. and MBA from the Michael G. Foster School of Business at the University of Washington. Justin also produces his own interview podcast called A New Angle. Today we focus on the aforementioned Fireline podcast series, which was released earlier this year through Montana Public Radio. If you haven't heard the series, each of the seven episodes dive deeply into different aspects of wildfire. The series does an outstanding job presenting multiple points of view without an agenda other than to demonstrate that the topic is complicated and nuanced, and we all have a role to play in finding solutions. Today we discuss the topics Justin covered in his series, all centered around the idea that there is never a simple, single answer. We discuss how wildfire impacts can be both positive and negative, depending on perspective and context. We dig into the complexities of how years of wildfire policy and suppression have affected fire behavior, and how rising temperatures due to climate change catalyzes more and larger fires. We discuss the growth of the wildland-urban interface, or WUI, and how that creates more risk for negative human impact when wildfire occurs. This includes the relatively recent research that shows that windblown embers can be a primary driver to fire spread and a primary risk to homes, not the towering flame front that we often envision. This radically changes how communities and homeowners need to prepare, which quickly turns into a sociology problem more than a science problem. Any discussion of wildfire is incomplete without investigating human history and influence on wildfire, and Fireline covers indigenous use of fire through the perspective of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes, as well as some fascinating anthropological research that we touch on today. We also spend time looking at Justin's atypical route to creating this show and the process and partners he engaged to make it a reality. The show was produced at the peak of the pandemic, requiring Justin and his team to pivot to make the show a reality. Justin is considering creating a season two, so please give season one a listen and help make season two possible. So without further delay, please enjoy our discussion of the realities of wildfire in the West through the lens of Fireline. Justin, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for asking me to come on. I uh, was excited to hear your show, Fireline, as I mentioned in the introduction, because I've always been really interested in wildfire, and I've lived in the West now for the last 20 years or so. And just in that 20-year time period, I've seen such a change in fire behavior, the, the size, the frequency, the impact to, to homes and individuals. So your show really hit the nail on the head for me, anyway, to give different perspectives. Yeah, good. What I was really interested in, uh, well, lots of things I'm interested in about, about you and the show, but given your educational background, you're a professor in Montana, and it seems like your background is in marketing and you have an MBA, a PhD. What catalyzed you to spend a couple years on this wildfire series? It seems like a little bit of a non sequitur. Yeah, it's not necessarily how you draw it up in, uh, you know, the, the career path of your typical academic. So, I, you know, I'm housed in a business school. I teach various business classes, strategy, introduction to business, marketing, branding, and I do research largely kind of applied social psychology. 
You know, and about four years ago, I started playing around with podcasts for some online classes I was developing and really found it to be a, a really useful medium for students. And students were just much more likely to engage and listen to a podcast and come to class prepared to think about ideas and, and discuss than they were if I just assigned a reading. And so I started kind of playing with building my own podcast through you know an interview show. I've got a, an interview show I've been doing three and a half years called The New Angle. And I just think it's a great form for kind of playing around with ideas. I wanted to do an episode about fire. You interview somebody. Uh, I've got a lot of friends that are kind of in the in the firefighting space, the fire research space, the policy space. And in talking to a couple of them, it just became clear that, you know, doing uh, a single interview was just not going to do the topic justice. And that since here in Missoula, we're really at an epicenter of fire on so many different dimensions that um, the opportunity existed to kind of tell a deep story about fire. And for me, like, yeah, it's not really an academic publication, but I do sort of feel like it's kind of a form of scholarship as a form of research, certainly a different form than I had done before. So I needed to get help from from journalists and other folks that kind of are, are trained in that type of inquiry. But, you know, for me, it just sort of feels like a natural progression of, of thinking of ways to investigate ideas and communicate them to an audience that, that you know, we, we need more understanding of complicated topics in our society. And so that was, that was kind of the goal of, um, of the project. And, you know, I'll sort of let the listener decide if, if we accomplish that goal or not. You actually touched on a whole bunch of things that I'd like to dive deeper sure. into as we uh, as we go throughout this interview. But why don't we talk a little bit about the show and the content? And mm-hmm. I want to get back then to maybe some of the process and especially the journalistic side. As you know, myself, I'm not a journalist. I would like to pursue some podcast series in the future, which is really going to stretch my capabilities. So I'm interested to hear a little bit more about how you did that as well. So, yeah. so we'll get to that here in a moment. I think the thing when I first tuned into your show that really hit home for me was the opening quote. And I'll just read that. It's, uh, you said late last summer, it felt like the whole country was up in flames. And as simple of a quote as that is, I could relate a hundred percent because, you know, not only were we locked up because of the pandemic, uh, but here at my house, I'm in San Jose, California. Mm. I was sandwiched in between two of the largest California wildfires in history. One of them turned out to be the third largest ever. And just a couple years ago, it would have been by far the largest ever. But that just goes to show how rapidly the fire situation has worsened, where uh, it's it's only number three now, whereas a couple years ago, it would have been by far the largest. So, uh, you know, we couldn't go outside. Smoke was in the air. And something that really surprises me because my day job is in tech. And we have a lot of people come to Silicon Valley for tech jobs. And in talking to people that work about it, so many people thought this was normal because mm-hmm. for the five or 10 years that they've lived in this area, every summer, you know, we get socked in with smoke at some point. Uh, so back to your opening line, the, the surprise to me was how much that hit home, whereas there's this other segment of the population that maybe thinks it's normal. And the media coverage then doesn't help too much because it often gets characterized as a single variable problem. You know, it's either mismanagement or it's climate change or it's, you know, pick your topic of choice. So long story short, you cover many of these topics in your show. 
What do you feel like are the biggest contributors to this change in fire behavior? And I realize that's super open-ended, so you can take that wherever, whatever's on top of mind. Yeah, there's there's so many variables, you know, and it's it's a complicated picture. And one that sort of, you know, also one of the things in that opening sequence of the, the, the series is what to do about all this fire depends on who you ask. So there is a narrative that... Uh, you know, years of suppressing fire, you know, culture of suppression from our land management agencies have led to the accumulation of fuel on the landscape. And so that sets us up for conditions of uh, more intense fires. And it's sort of this ironic kind of effect that we got so good at suppressing fires for so long that now there's this abundance of fuel and, 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 and then you catalyze that with climate change and the conditions are ripe for catastrophic fires. There are others that say, you know what, the, the, the accumulation of fuels is not as significant a variable as a lot of folks think and a lot of land managers think, and that climate change is the driving factor. In fact, the climate scientist we talked to, Kathy Whitlock in particular, you know, in her view, it was about 95% climate driven. And according to her, it's, it's not necessarily a simple you know, system, but it is a simple effect that, that higher temperatures lead to more fires. And we're experiencing higher temperatures and we're getting more fires. And actually, according to her, we, you know, and, and research from, from her colleagues, like we should be due for more fires than we actually have, according to the temp- where the temperatures are, given the historical record and the, the, the um, frequency and intensity of fires in relationship to temperatures throughout history. You know, and then I think another factor when we get to this later on in the series is we've also developed more and more of our civilization and our population growth has, you know, gotten further and further into, you know, I'm sure we'll get to this, Michael, the wild and urban interface, right? So you've got more homes in close proximity to fire-prone areas. And so that creates situation, you know, fires burning out in the wilderness, you know, yeah, they might spin off smoke and that might, you know, bother some of us or whatever, but it's not the, the catastrophic fires that you see on the media. You know, what you see on the media are homes burning and we're building more and more homes closer to areas that have historically burned frequently. You know, that's a real topic and how to manage that is, is a big challenge. You interviewed kind of a legendary researcher in the space, Jack Cohen, mm-hmm. and he recounts a story where he's out with a friend. I think they're doing like a community assessment of wildfire risk. And his friend says something along the lines of, you know, Jack, this isn't rocket science. And then Jack says, you're right. It's not. It's social science to which his friend replies, "Uh Oh, we're screwed. (laughs) And that, you know, I think is one of the, one of the things that interests me most about this space is as people, I, you know, at least I believe that it's a lot easier to have a single answer, you know, to be able to say this, we, if we just do this one thing, you know, we're able to live in concert with fire and it won't be so impactful. And it turns out it's not so simple. And it sounds like that's your, some of your background as well, maybe more from the, uh, the business side mm-hmm. of the space. What have you found has been most effective in engaging people in aspects of wildfire that perhaps they're not wanting or ready to hear? Yeah, that, you know, that's, 
I have to say, like some of my colleagues and some of the folks we interviewed on the show are, are, are more qualified to answer that because I think they're the ones kind of doing this work where they're trying to, you know, engage people. We were trying to engage uh, the listener and to, you know, the, the over, one of the overarching goals of the show is to say, hey, you know, fire is a complicated issue and we each have a role to play in the solution. And we sort of tried to give listeners access points to various ideas that they could then sort of play around with and say, okay, well, how can I, you know, where can I be a part of the solution? Um, you know, what Jack was referring to there is there's a lot of things that, you know, if you live in the WUI, as a homeowner, you kind of have a responsibility to do certain things with your home to make it more resilient to wildfire. You're not going to fireproof your home, but you can do simple things like making sure the vegetation is responsibly trimmed around your property, keeping your gutters and roofs clean, like things like this. And his research really showed that the sort of flaming front overtaking a house is what we see a lot in the media. Like those are the pic the images we see, but that's not what's destroying houses, right? It's embers that are coming from fires and floating for miles and landing in a gutter that just happens to have dry leaves in it. And that's what torches a house. And so getting people to a place where they, you know, we have this expectation that fire comes and the fire truck will show up and protect our home. And you know, that's not necessarily a realistic expectation. Um, there's not enough fire trucks, and it's sometimes too difficult a job. And sometimes the flame is not the thing that's coming to your house. It's that ember, like I just mentioned. So how do you get somebody to sort of temper that expectation and then take action to do these kind of mundane, routine uh, maintenance-oriented things around their home that can really have an effect, but it's one of those preventative things, right? It's like eat your spinach. Well, I don't want to eat my spinach. I want to eat other stuff. Well, you know, eating your spinach is the way to have a long, healthy life, and you, know, you get the analogy there. But you know, some of those things, like trying to give people actionable insights, but it's hard to get people to change. I mean, that's the whole thing, the social science piece of getting people to change. They certainly don't want to change if you, you know, they're not going to change if you tell them they have to. And if you give them more information about why it's important that they change, they're going to change if they sort of understand the problem for themselves and trust the source of the information. So it's multivariate, it's nonlinear, it's uh, oftentimes irrational, and it takes a lot of time to get people to embrace new ideas. I think the pair, one of the pair anyway, that you interviewed on the social scientist front was Libby and Alex Metcalf. Mm -hmm. And they referred to this as information deficit. So just giving more information and telling people they need to change doesn't work. It's, it's kind of a long game. As you researched the show, and we'll talk a little bit about the timeline and how you put it together here in a moment, but as you researched the show, were there any facts in particular? So we were just were talking about information deficit, not changing people's minds, but I'm sure you had some preconceived notions going into this whole thing. Were there any, any facts that were really eye-opening to you or any paths of discovery that were maybe especially surprising? Yeah, there were two really kind of mind-blowing pieces of information. I mean, a lot of these ideas in the show, I'd kind of been swimming around for a long time, but you know, the Jack Cohen research about the home ignition zone, and, you know, and, and this kind of was, you know, I kind of knew about his research. I was reading some of his papers. And then I, I watched the, I think it was a Netflix documentary on the campfire that um, just destroyed the town of Paradise. You know, you see these overhead shots of 
you know, what look like large, not old growth, but large mature trees, kind of untouched, maybe a little singed, surrounding just vaporized homes, homes just burned down to the foundation. And you're thinking like, how can that happen? And then you, you sort of start to understand Jack's research and yeah, this home ignition zone and not everybody agrees with how significant that is in driving the destruction of homes, but it's a really compelling theory and one I had not thought about at all. I'd never considered it that way because you just don't see images of that. The other kind of piece that I had not uh, considered that was just fascinating and it's kind of a you know, it, it's a bit of an aside in the series, but I think it's an effective way in, in episode three of telling a, a historical aspect is the work of this anthropologist, Richard Rangham. And we interview him and he has this, basically he advanced this theory or prediction really more than a theory that the moment at which we became humans is the moment that we became able to control fire. And he talks about the historical record of, you know, fire led to cooking and cooking led to smaller stomachs and larger brains and like all this chain of evolution and innovation enabled by our ability to cook and consume calories uh, in greater numbers more efficiently and spend much less time chewing. And so this stuff seems like these technical sort of mundane details. You're like, why, why are we learning this? How's it related to wildfire? But sort of set us in motion along this line of controlling fire, you know? And that's something we've been trying to do, you know, according to Richard, through the entirety of our existence as humans. And, you know, we try to draw out this picture like, yeah, we, we've controlled fire now to the extent that, like, we burn everything. Like combustion is the basis for so much of our economy. It powers everything. And now that all this obsession with burning has put us in this position with climate change where we burned up the planet and now it might burn us up. Yeah, as you were describing that evolution, I was also thinking about the parallels that could be drawn with controlling nature more mm -hmm. generally and, uh, and not just fire. It's really an interesting thought process with a um, seemingly surprising conclusion <laughs> that's, uh, that's not going as, as expected. Right. Talking about the journalistic side of the podcast. Something that really struck me was after listening to the whole series multiple times, you know, because every time I listen, I pick up a little bit more, I realized that you really outlined all of this information in a way that it, it, it doesn't seem to be preaching. It's just laying out information, interviews from people, different perspectives. And I tried and tried to figure out what your angle was, you know, on this. And I really, I really couldn't tell what it was. So I think from a journalistic standpoint, it turned out really, really well. I'm wondering how much of that was natural for you and how much of that was through the help of your journalistic friends that you mentioned at the beginning. Well, yeah, I mean, I think this is important time to note that, yeah, I'm not a journalist. I have no formal training in journalism. And I do have training in sort of how to do qualitative interviews from a social science perspective um, and just experience doing interviews for, for my other show. But yeah, once this became clear that we, we wanted to do something longer form, something more in-depth, collaborating with journalists just seemed like a necessity. 
And so we have a great journalism program here at the University of Montana. I mean, I think it was ranked eighth in the country last year. Just some outstanding talent, both in the faculty and the students coming out. And so I was able to, to um, just enlist some some help from a, a he was a senior at the time, Victor Ivez, to come on and sort of help get the show going. Uh, we had a local journalist by the name of um, um, Jeff Hull. He was a you know investigative writer, and um, another student helped out. And, you know, we kind of you know we're finding our way, and then COVID hit, and so we had to kind of do all of our interviews. Uh, through Zoom and the audio quality wasn't great. And, you know, it wasn't until uh, I think we had like aspects of a good story at that point, but it was sort of unclear, like what it would look like at the end, the style. And, you know, at that point, you know, Montana Public Radio became interested in getting involved um, in, on the podcast side for distributing the episode, the, the, the series. They'd been wanting to do something in the wildfire space for years. And so, you know, we, we started talking and they were able to um, connect me with, you know, a journalist on their team, uh, Nick Mott, who's just got a, a great talent for narrative podcasting, long form narrative podcasting, particularly in the in- environmental space. He's a producer on the Threshold podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with Threshold, but, you know, that team's won a Peabody Award and he's the producer on Richest Hill. And so he brought, you know, not only... the you know, the, the the tools of journalism, but also this stylistic sensibility where he really helped us kind of map out like what's going to be the style of the show. And we pivoted a lot from the sort of Zoom interview recordings and studio recordings to more scene-based storytelling, building characters. And because we wanted the characters to be the ones to tell the story. And I mentioned some of those characters. You mentioned Jack Cohen. We mentioned Richard Rangham, Kathy Whitlock, the Metcalfs. Uh, Lily Clark, who I'm sure we'll get to. And I think that um, telling the story through characters and using narration to kind of just, you know, set up what the characters were saying and draw it out with a little bit more clarity and supplement it with with facts and figures and stats and so forth allowed us to, yeah, I mean, stay out of it in terms of like trying to advance an agenda or a particular point of view. And I do think, like, when you talk about my angle, like, what I try to do in the show uh, through the narration and how we construct it at all is just to advance the idea that, like I said before, this is a complicated problem and we all have a role to play in the solution. And I think a position like that is sort of, it's not political necessarily. It's, it's one of the few things that's probably not political in this environment we're living in. But just the notion that we all kind of have some responsibilities, particularly those of us that, that live in the WUI. Right. And you wrap up the show talking about that, you know, fire's here to stay. It's always been here. And we have to be able to learn to live with it together, mm-hmm. uh, which I think by presenting these different perspectives, you, uh, you help the listener really come to that same conclusion that, you know, it is a complicated situation. In my neck of the woods, something that has really stood out to me in the wildfire space is the number of human ignitions and the timing of those human ignitions, which, uh, you know, maybe they're happening all the time. And when it's winter and it's the rainy season here in California, it just doesn't do much. But when it's in the middle of a high wind event in the annual drought in summer, 
these things really blow up quickly. You touched on this a little bit, the human nature of fire starts, and also the complicating factor about the, the history of indigenous fire. Yeah. And that in itself could be an entire series. How, how did you choose how to whittle down that one topic into, uh, into what you picked? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it was r- really important to, you know, w- w- like here in, in Montana, you know, particularly in Missoula, like we have, you know, a, a really uh, progressive and interesting or, you know, a, a, I think a, a particularly um, just clear thinking local fire regime, this wildfire adapted Missoula group, which is an interagency group. It's also, you know, the county is involved, the city's involved and the United Way are involved and they are engaging the public to just get people involved and aware of various initiatives those agencies want to do to keep us safer. And a large piece of that includes some fuels management on the landscape. That could be, you know, what are what are called mechanical treatments. Um, when people hear that, they, they think logging. It's not always logging, but that's what a lot of people think. And also prescribed burning, prescribed burning's tough because people don't want smoke, right? They get grumpy when this area gets smoky in May and it's prescribed burning or, you know, whatever. So like we're trying to, those groups are are really trying to do some things that can help make the community healthier and more resilient and safer. But those things um, present ideas that maybe the top, the, the, the public really isn't willing to think about. And, you know, we thought that a way to juxtapose that um, reality against kind of what's been happening on this landscape historically um, before colonialization and um, before, you know, white people came and sort of started to think we could control every aspect of nature is this indigenous uh, relationship to the land and so engaged this father-son team, Tony Incasola Jr., Tony Incasola Sr., who, who are tribal members of the you know, Confederated Salish Kootenai tribes up kind of in, on the Flathead Reservation. Uh, Jr. is a uh, you know, wildfire manager up there, and Sr. is um, – he's been on the cultural committee for the tribes for years. And so it was great to just sort of hear – how the tribes have reckoned with this um, for years and how fire has just been a part of their culture to the standpoint it's not separate from nature. They're not separate from nature. It just kind of is. And they view fire as this gift and and it's been used. You know, it could be just like clearing a campsite. It could be just allowing fire on the landscape to rejuvenate the land. And we tell the story of how they reintroduced fire to this particular landscape um, in the Jocko Prairie and just how the land came, you know, and the tribe had sort of, you know, the elders remembered what the land used to look like or heard stories about what the land used to look, look like, but but a lot of the younger tribal members did not. And to see how that you know, reintroduction of fire just transformed the landscape and to draw out from that, like, you know, the potential for this, you know, how do we get the public more kind of aware of the utility of prescribed burning and the importance of it in managing fire risk for a community? I think it was just a, a nice way to build that bridge, but also to highlight various aspects of indigenous culture and wisdom, but also this notion that the thought that we can control 
fire and control every aspect of nature is, is a misguided notion. Um, we confront it at the level of these catastrophic fires, but we need to confront it at the micro level too, because I think that's where like effective change can, can really happen. I did enjoy that segment and especially the rejuvenation of the area when the prescribed burns were reintroduced. There's this concept of a fire return interval and mm. there's some historical data that can be collected based on like ash deposits and, and things like that. So uh, it seems like that fire ecologists and other people who study the field have a rough idea of what this what normal fire return intervals would be for different environments over um, at least a few thousand years. Mm -hmm. And what I've noticed is, to your point of there's a lot of nuance in this discussion, certain environments have very rapid fire return intervals. Like I interviewed a fellow on this show, Rick Halsey, uh, and we focused a lot about chaparral fire. And the chaparral, there's shrubs and grasses, you know, largely. And some of the shrubs are slow growing, but in that environment, the fire return interval uh, can be, even just within Chaparral, highly variable depending on where you're at. And then you move to like Ponderosa Pine Forests or, or Doug Fir Forests, and it's very different. Yep. The thing that has always perplexed me, and I don't know if, if you got into this with your guests in the show, is when we look at those historical norms, that was also a very different ecosystem back then. We've introduced a lot of non-native species. We've replanted a lot of forests. They no longer look the same. What were you able to find on that topic? Like, sh Should we look to the historical record as an indicator of what normal would be? Or is that just too simplistic as well? Yeah, I mean, defining what normal is, is, is I think, kind of a, a slippery concept. I mean, I, I think, like we mentioned before, what Kathleen Whitlock was saying was that, you know, there's a pretty clear relationship in the historical record between temperature and fire. And so she's using, the way she draws out that historical record is through cores, sediment cores in lakes. And, you know, you can sort of tell by the, the, the pollens that are present in a particular area, what sort of plants were growing there. And you can interpolate from that, like what sort of temperatures would allow that sort of plant to grow there. But yeah, you're right. Like, you know, I think in broad brushes, we can kind of tell temperature effects from that. And then this is not my area of science. So I'm kind of giving you the Cliff Notes version, at least according to me. Uh, so we can kind of make, draw conclusions about temperature but then that, yeah, you're right, that mix of, you know, there, there has been more movement of species around um, since humans have kind of been, or, you know, you know, at least in recent history, moving various plant species around. You know, I, I don't know how, how that has changed forests. I, I think what we saw had changed forests is, you know, that the, when you suppress a fire, you remove... Um, that periodic fire, whatever that return interval is, we, we, we tend to, we, we have suppressed it in certain areas. And that has led to certain species being in more dense population than they had before, or certain species intermixing, or, you know, an unhealthy understory where, you know, smaller vegetation closer to the ground that would normally be burned regularly in the ponderosas for example would, would would survive that stuff's not getting burned out so that yeah there is this different mix of of vegetation you know and some say that 
plays a big role in, in wildfire risk, and, and others say, you know, it's driven mostly by climate. So there's there's a lot of debate around these things. You know, I think what I took away from it is just we're always. I mean, the reality is we're in this regime where where we kind of have to manage. Uh, all these variables to some degree. People look at this dense, lush, green forest, and you know we look at you know people who live in the woo. We look at that as this like what they think is a normal, healthy forest, and it might actually be a very unhealthy forest historically. It might be overgrown. It might be too dense. So I think kind of expanding our notion of what is normal is kind of the important thing for just the lay listener. Um, that just because it's a view you've seen your whole life doesn't mean that that's a normal, healthy forest. It, it could be, it could be healthy. It could, it could be tremendously unhealthy. It could be dangerous. It could be uh, resilient. We we don't know. Um, it it varies from place to place. Yeah, the interesting notion here, you know, you think about timescales, and of course, I think on one end of the spectrum you have a geologic timescale, but an ecological timescale. A hundred years is not long at all. You know, it's yeah. it's it's that time scale is beyond like a human lifespan, but it's not quite geologic. So to your point, it's really hard to see the changes happening in a single lifetime. And unless there's a conscious effort to understand what is happening and what is changing, I think that it uh, it just goes unnoticed by, as you said, the the layperson. So not a layperson, a very interesting character in your series was Lily Clark. Mm. She's actually a uh, wildland firefighter and gave a totally different perspective than I think a layperson would hear about fire. Can you tell me a little bit about Lily Clark, how you found her and uh, and what her perspective was? Yeah, so Lily Clark was a, a master's student here in, in the College of Forestry and Conservation. She was actually a student of Libby and Alex Metcalf, and that's that's how uh, I met Lily, because uh, I collaborate with Libby and Alex on a, on a variety of social science projects, and so familiar with kind of the, the students in their lab. And um, I didn't advise Lily, but you know I've I've advised students in that in that group. Um, so I met Lily on a variety of occasions, and then our producer Victor ha- had known Lily through the community, and we. You know, we started the series trying to draw out some of these issues through a particular fire here in Missoula. It was a small fire, but it was close to town. And um, it was one of those where we wanted to kind of set the stage for the series by drawing out the various decisions in this one particular fire. So we interviewed a lot of firefighters and decision makers. And it just like, as we were trying to do it, the, the, the setup wasn't quite working for what we wanted to do. We wanted to really kind of understand what it was like to be up close and personal with, with fire. And of course, like, you know, the Forest Service isn't going to allow me to get out there. I mean, or, or they might if I go through all this training and hoops. But, you know, we have these phones in our pockets all the time that can record and and Lily was willing to um, you know she was on the August complex which was one of the bigger fires this summer or the summer of 2020 and yeah she was able to do a couple I think really effective things for us to tell this rich narrative picture of her experience being on the fire line both in terms of the 
the power and the ferocity of a fire, but also some of the mundane aspects and some of the more beautiful aspects. I mean, the, the, the beauty of fire is something that I think she captures really well. And, you know, it's not the sort of stereo, she's not the stereotypical firefighter. You know, she's not some big, burly, strong man. You know, she's certainly strong, a strong woman, but her sensibility is one that I think maybe would catch the listener off guard when they're sort of thinking about the prototypical fire lily. I don't think is the person um, or the image you would immediately summon. So that was, I think, effective too at, at painting a picture of just what it's like to be on the ground, you know, sort of the boots on the ground metaphor. Um, I think Lily uh, just paints such a rich picture of it. And I think it was a good way into the series because she was able to highlight how complex an issue this is. I mean, even a firefighter whose job it is to fight fire. I mean, that's the definition of their job title. They're not doing that all the time. It's not glamorous all the time. And it's also one where they are mesmerized by the beauty of it at times too, in spite of its destructive capability. So yeah, I thought Lily was, yeah, we, we locked out with, with being able to engage her. She happened to have an assignment that was, you know, effective and put her in a position to send us some recordings. And yeah, I thought it was a great way to kind of get into the series. All of her recordings were through her phone? That's right. Yeah. Uh, Well, no, she came in after her stint on the line. She came into the studio um, right here where I'm talking to you to kind of draw out some of the topics we wanted to investigate further. So yeah, in episode one, it's, it's mostly her field recordings supplemented by a few questions in the studio. I have to say, I guess that just goes to show how technology, how great it is, because the field recording sounded really good. And yeah. I just assumed that there was at least a microphone attached to the phone or, you know, something beyond that. No, straight into an iPhone. That's yeah. amazing. And what I noticed, and, and this is episode one, so anyone listening to this show, you know, please at least give it a try and give episode one a listen. That's where Lily is one of the main focal characters. And what I noticed about her descriptions from the front lines, you know, after days of working the August complex was it was almost like a a mindfulness practice (laughs) in a way. Yeah. She could look at a burning tree and just see the beauty in it and accept the fact that that fire is a thing. Fire is natural. It's been here and just be there in the moment doing the job. And and that really was, you know, to, to your point a surprising perspective for me. And I think that hooked me on the show right there. Yeah. I mean, one thing Lily says is that, you know, fire in and of itself is not a problem. It's an, it's a natural thing, but when fire gets close to human values, that's when it becomes a problem. And that's when, you know, that it gets a lot more complicated. Mm -hmm. And speaking of getting close to human values, we talked a lot about the WUI, the wildland urban interface earlier and you even mentioned some of the pictures you saw of the campfire of mm-hmm. entire subdivisions burned, whereas the forest stands right next to it were still intact and not really affected. And I saw many of the same things in Santa Rosa. Santa Rosa's had a couple of uh, yeah. severe, severely impactful fires over the last half decade or so. And you'll even see individual houses a few subdivisions away from the fire front that just burned and then the surrounding houses are all fine. And I think that speaks to Jack Cohen's research and embers really driving a lot of this impact. So with all of that in mind, you wrapped up the show with a deep dive really into the WUI and some things that homeowners can do 
to protect themselves. And you know, the one thing that I wasn't sure about is how can I tell what my fire risk is? Like, am, am I as a listener of your show, am I in the wooey? Are there resources to go figure that out? Uh, some communities have those resources. I mean, there's there's wildfire protection plans. I think there's you know eighteen thousand communities in, in the West have these wildfire protection plans, and, and they're sort of collaboratively developed across the agencies that you know have jurisdiction in a particular area. And from that, you can get an assessment of the sort of risks facing your home. Here in Missoula, we have, you know, this through this wildfire adapted pro- Missoula program, we have, a, you know, a county officer who will come to your home and do an assessment and tell you what risk factors you're facing, both on the, the broader scale of, of where you live relative to fuels in the WUI and risk in the WUI, but also in terms of, you know, micro aspects of your home, you know, your, your gutters, the design of your home, the vegetation around it and so forth, and give you tools to uh, address those concerns. Some of the concerns are very minor, like clean out your gutters, for example. That's not hard to do. It's hard to motivate to do it. I just did mine last week. <laughs> it took me a while to gain the motivation to do it, but it's just basic chores. And other things you know, could be more significant and could require more significant investment, like say you have a wooden shingle roof, like that's that's you know a problem if you live in the WUI, and and so changing that out is a, is a big lift, and there are programs and financial or financing opportunities and grants you can engage in to sort of ease the burden of those things, and I think that to me like it, and this is an area where like I think my my wife and I are talking this through. It's like we live right up again, you know we're we're. You know, I don't want to say deep in the wooey, but like, you know, if a fire came into Missoula from the north, it would, you know, our house would be one of the first stops on its travels. This experience has forced us to kind of think about the nature of our home and the vegetation around it. And yeah, so I don't really know if I answered your question, Michael, about, you know, what you can do, but I, I think that the taking action and seeking out that information, seeing if your community has a wildfire protection plan and then seeing, you know, what kind of resources are available to you as a homeowner. And I think, you know, we didn't get into this in the show. And I think this is an aspect that if there is a season two, we'll get into. You know, I think insurance companies are going to play a, a larger and larger role in this space. Information from insurance companies about what you need to do to make your home more resilient to fire, I think, is also available. Hmm. That's an interesting thought because then there could be direct financial incentive, you know, discounts on insurance if if you prepare in certain ways, and you know, then then that's a whole other ethical dilemma <laughs> to oh, deal gosh. with. Oh gosh, I mean, yeah, we 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 that, and that's kind of why it didn't get into the show because it's such a a big topic. I mean, there are instances of insurers just dropping entire communities in California, in particular. I think California passed a law to pre- prevent some of that. Uh, but then that's like, that's an artificial market structure that's imposed upon the insurance market. And y- yeah, and, and you've got cities and towns that have these financial incentives to rebuild in areas that were just burned because they need the tax revenue. So it is a really complicated picture of how to, you know, are these homes protectable? And if they are not, uh, or you know, how much should we pay to protect a home? who should be paying? How do you balance that at a societal level? Those are big questions. Yeah, just when we think we're starting to wrap our heads around the nuance of wildfire, then you overlay politics on top of it, which <laughs> exactly uh, is a uh, compounding factor for sure. 
So yeah, what, what I asked about assessing risk and whether you're in the WUI, I kind of had this vision, again, my perspective here in California, you can go to the US Geological Survey's website uh -huh. and you can see things like earthquake risk and maximum shake predictions and things like that and kind of get a, a rough assessment based on their data. And I, uh, I did some Googling and really couldn't find a similar sort of national mapping system. It did seem like it was a lot of local initiatives. So I guess the, the takeaway from what you said is check in with your local city or county, do some Google searches, talk to your yeah. community, and, and, yeah. and really that's your best bet. Yeah, and I think if you live close to a national forest, for example, these national forests should all have risk assessments you know, maps drawn about, you know, the, the, the sort of severity of risk in any given part of their forest. Now, you know, there could be a large gap between your property and a national forest boundary. And what, that could be a bunch of different things. It could be private land. It could be agricultural land. It could be, you know, it could be state land or, or BLM land or any, any number of things. And so, yeah, I mean, that's one of the challenges of this, not only from a management standpoint, but also just understanding the information and the risk to each one of us is like this patchwork of land ownership, uh, you know, because fires don't care who owns the land. Um, but the landowners can dictate what gets done to mitigate fire risks on that land. So that's, that's another complicating factor. This is actually like on the forefront of my mind, because I, I live in an area that if I just were to look around, I would say it might be the wooey. <laughs> I, I'm in a subdivision and it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of narrowing into this little valley. So it's a pretty narrow subdivision. I can walk a couple hundred meters and be in the hills. The hills here are very grassy, not a lot of trees. So the, the fuel composition is different. And being in a valley, we're kind of wind protected most of the time as well. So I, I think about all of these variables and what does it mean for my home if there was say a wildfire in the grassy hills nearby uh, what are the chances of embers blowing from that sort of fuel load? So I, I looked it up and my county does have a uh, like a fire risk mapping website and it shows low risk for my neighborhood. And I'm really just highly skeptical of right. whether that's true or not. Uh, and I've read stories as well, like Santa Rosa, some of those neighborhoods weren't, weren't considered high risk and, uh, and are totally gone. Uh, so it's, sounds like there's not even a standard way to assess these risks. Is, is that accurate from what you've been able to find? And, and I apologize if this is getting outside of the realm of, of what you researched. Yeah, I mean, it's a little out of my lane, but we did kind of talk about this with some some of the Forest Service folks here, you know, and some of the, you know, the academics and, and Kimmy Barrett at Headwaters Economics. So there is a, you know, among the academic community, some some notion that wooey as defined by you know somebody who lives or a home that lives within a half a mile of the vegetation front if you will that definition or that conceptualization is is maybe not adequate for describing the problem uh, Kimmy Barrett uh, who's a researcher at, at headwaters economics and she's in the you know episode six um, she talks about fire-prone landscapes, I think is the way Headwaters defines it. And they, they map it at a more granular level. And it is, it, it's complicated to map because it is this patchwork of land ownership. It's this combination of the landscape itself, the vegetation on it, the homes. You have to sort of also view homes as fuel in some ways. And 
mapping that is not an easy proposition. These wildfire protection plans, like the one here in Missoula, they have done extensive mapping to sort of map out the risk. And most of the risk around Missoula is, you know, it's considered a high high risk area. You know, and then risk is sort of interesting, too, in the sense that you could have a catastrophic fire. Well, not necessarily tomorrow because it's pouring rain here today. But during fire season, the catastrophic fire could come tomorrow if lightning strikes in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or it could be 50 years from now. It's, it's really hard to, to sort of know. So it's a hard problem to solve. And I don't think we have we need better tools to do it, I think, is kind of the, the takeaway that I come I come away with. It's just really difficult to assess risk over long time scales as well. Oh yeah, I mean we know that about you know all of us, right? We, we I think it's like like you said before, once it's outside of a lifetime, it becomes too abstract for us to really think about. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So I did want to go back and ask you a little bit about how you structured the series. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you had some notions at the beginning before. I apologize. Was it Nick Mott? The yep. Yep, but before uh, Nick was engaged, and, and perhaps it changed a little bit after he was engaged. So, so what does that look like? Were you out doing interviews already and then had to go back and, and get some new content or, or fill in some story gaps? Or were you just outlining the show at that point and it was all sort of greenfield interviews uh, once Nick was in, in, uh, engaged? Yeah, I mean, it's a combination of all those things, Michael. It was some, um, you know, doing interviews to just sort of, you know, hear, there's so many experts in this area, whether it's, you know, people in the firefighting regime here, people in land management, uh, the National Fire Sciences Lab, or one of the National Fire Sciences Labs is here, and then the, our College of Forestry and Conservation is so many prominent scholars. So there's just a ton of access to incredible folks here in Missoula, in Montana in general, that, that, that we, we sort of were ticking off a list of, of talking to these people. We started with some notions of how we would tell the story at one point, and I kind of alluded to this before, we were going to tell the story through fires, you know, both small and large, to kind of draw from that fire, like what were the decisions, how were they made, and, and how did we learn and, you know, as we were doing that, like, that's when we kind of went into COVID lockdown and person-to-person recordings were not as doable. We got into last spring and case counts here in Montana were really low. It seemed like it was safe to maybe get out and do some reporting. Nick got involved, I think, yeah, in, in the springtime and brought with him this idea of like, let's build some characters telling the stories through the fires, just the idea started to kind of break down and we wanted to maybe shift to telling the stories through characters. And so that meant going out and doing more field recordings and creating more scenes and setting. And once you do a bit of that, it kind of made obsolete some of the studio and Zoom recordings we had in, in the can for various reasons, stylistic and sound quality mostly. That's not to say that stuff wasn't hugely informative in crafting the show and the narrative, but it, a lot of it just didn't make it into the edit. You know, and some of those people, like Brent Ruby, for example, he's a he's a physiologist who's in episode uh, five, I believe, that's about the firefighter. He does research on firefighters. We had done a studio interview with Brent, and um, you know, we had some great stuff there, 
But we wanted to make him come to life as a character. He's such an interesting, unique guy. And so we did a recording kind of in his workshop, which is a really quirky, uh, particularly Brent space that kind of brings him to life. Asked him a lot of the same questions, but put it in the setting. And I think it creates a richer experience for the listener. Yeah, so, it, you know, what I'm describing here is maybe not a very organized process. I mean, you know, once we got these recordings from Lily, that sort of recentered how we were going to kind of get into the show. We knew we wanted to talk about the big burn, but so many folks have talked about the big burns. So we tried to find, you know, Victor came up with the idea of going to Wallace and uh, he found this guy, Jim C., who had, you know, developed this trail up to the mine where, you know, Pulaski and his colleagues you know, waited out the big burn. And so like, that was a different way into that story. Yeah. Just at every step of the way where it's like, what do do we need this episode to do? Whether it's talking about the culture of suppression or talking about um, prescribed burning or talking about climate change, what is a way into that, that maybe people hadn't considered or heard of before? We don't do that in every, every episode, but, but we, we try to kind of do that throughout in such a way that the listener doesn't necessarily get what they expect. It's they're, they're getting stories they maybe haven't heard before. Right. I've heard about the Big Burn. I've read about the Big Burn. And I still found that a very interesting description. And I enjoyed hearing about it again. But, you know, in the way that you told that story. Yeah. And I think the process you just talked about shows the amount of creativity required to put a show together like that, because there's a point in time, you called it a little bit messy. Uh, I think that was the, the word you used, but there's a point in time where it sounds like you realized that the direction wasn't ideal and letting go of an idea to take on a new direction can be really hard. So it's it's impressive that uh, you were able to do that. And you know, I, I keep just saying how much I enjoy the show and, and I really did for all of these reasons. Before we wrap up, I did want to ask you though, is there anything else you wanted to say about the show or wildfire, or you, you alluded that there may even be a season two. So mm-hmm. you know, what else would you like to say about where you're at on this topic? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, one, I'm just grateful, um, you know, that, 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 that you would invite us on and give us, ch- give me the chance to talk about the show and the team. Uh, we're, we're proud of the work. Uh, it was really fun and rewarding and challenging experience. You know, if, if listeners of your show have occasion to go check it out, you know, we appreciate that. And we'd love feedback. You know, this is a topic like we said th- throughout this conversation, Michael, that is complicated. And, you know, we know we didn't get everything right. We missed some things. You know, we're pretty, we're confident in, in our fact checking and process, but but it's a rich story. And there are chapters of it that haven't been told yet or didn't make it into the edit. And so, yeah, if you have a listen and have a take, you know, reach out to me directly or leave us a comment. And we are in that phase where we're thinking about, like, there's a lot more story to tell and what's the best way to do it. The other piece of this, too, is that, you know, long form investigative journalism in general is, I don't want to say it's under threat, but it's, it's, uh, it's a form of creative enterprise that is more and more difficult to sustain. You know, there's a market for it, I think, but it's harder and harder to realize that market. So we're kind of confronting that as well. We had great support from some really generous sponsors, and that enabled us to to do the reporting and take as much time as as we spent on it. But um, to make these sort of things more sustainable, a more robust financial model has to kind of come into play. I mean, you have to find people that want to tell the same story you want to tell. 
or interested in like one of our sponsors, Berkshire Hathaway is, you know, a, a real estate company here in Montana and, uh, or, you know, nationwide real estate company, but basically they wanted to support something that they could point their clients to like, you're coming to, you know, Missoula, Montana, whatever, and you're looking at buying a home. They want to educate people on what it's like to live in a, in a fire prone landscape so they can point to the series. So finding areas where your goals aligned with your sponsors is, is kind of a, a I mean, for me, like as the marketing guy, like that's one of the, the needle threading exercises I kind of enjoy, but it's, 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 it's long and it can be tedious. And, you know, fortunately we had, you know, a great community of sponsors that were able to jump on board. I think that's extremely surprising and forward-looking of Berkshire Hathaway to, yeah. uh, it, it, it seems like their incentive might be to ignore the fact that wildfire exists and mm-hmm. uh, focus on all the other good things. So fascinating that they would, uh, that they would do that. For those that want to learn more about Wildfire or your podcast, I know you have a great website with lots of resources, so maybe you can plug that. But in addition to that, do you have any other resources or pointers for people to go check out? Yeah, I would I would point them to, yes, our website. Thanks for mentioning it, firelinepodcast.org. I would say some of the scholars we interviewed are, are great resources. Steve Pine is a fire historian. I think he recently retired from Arizona State University, but that's where he spent uh, most of his years. His books are fantastic, kind of a lot of the authorita- authoritative history on fire. John McLean, if you're interested in, in sort of the, the sort of human story of fire, you know, catastrophic fires, um, John McLean is one of the authoritative writers in that space. Uh, his father, Norman McLean, wrote Young Men in Fire. And um, any one of his books, um, particularly Man Gul- about Man Gulch, that, 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 that book in particular will... Um, will shape the way you think about wildfire. I think Richard Rangham's book, Catching Fire, is fascinating. It's not necessarily about wildfire, but that human connection to fire. Uh, there's there's some other great podcasts out there. I mean, Amanda Montai has a great uh, show. It, it used to be called, I think it's called Life with Fire now. It started out as Living with Fire, but but she interviews a ton of people in the wildfire space. That's a, that's a good show. And we spoke with Amanda at one point during this podcast. I think maybe, you know, that's a season two topic that we could get to. Yeah. So there's a lot of great work being done in this space. And uh, we try to point listeners to some of that. Our website also has a resources page to get to some of the the source material that helped us put these episodes together. Yeah. So there's no shortage of, of great material out there. Great. And I'll have links to your website and some of those other resources as well on the show notes for this show. You've touched on maybe there'll be a season two. Uh, any other upcoming projects that you'd like to highlight? Well, I mean, I can, if, if folks are interested, I do, like I mentioned before, an interview show called A New Angle. You can find that at a, a newanglepodcast.com. It's also going to be airing on Montana Public Radio starting July 1. Uh, so that's a sort of an exciting opportunity for, for that show to sort of expand itself to a broader audience. And that's a show that, it's totally different and much leaner operation in interview show is, is, is a lot simpler to execute than a narrative edited podcast. Um, but we get a variety of guests and you know, not all business, not all, I mean, it's, it could be a business person. It could be, you know, a, a politician, an artist, an athlete, an activist, a writer, you know, and some of the, the, the guests we get, uh, you know, I think because of, 
Missoula and Western Montana being such an interesting space, we, we punch above our weight class a little bit in terms of the types of people that come through this town um, and want to engage with the university. So I've got a, a nice proximity to interesting folks. You know, we have have had, you know, Maureen Dowd from the New York Times, Jim Shuto from CNN, Larry Summers, um, prominent musicians that come through town, Jeff Amen, John Wicks, um, and others. So, you know, it's just, just kind of a grab bag of, of interesting folks. And that's a super fun and engaging project for me. That's very cool. And it sounds like you're able to capture the potential of the town really well. Uh, you mentioned punching above the weight class. Yeah. So if people do want to follow your work, you gave a couple pointers. There's, of course, the, uh, the Fireline podcast and, and the new angle. Where else should they go to, to look for you? Well, I mean, I got I to gotta sort of give a call out to this great university that I work at, the University of Montana. I'm in the College of Business, so you can just Google my name, Justin Angle, A-N-G-L-E, University of Montana College of Business. And um, this is a great place to study, particularly if you're interested in topics affecting the American West, um, you know, sustainability, climate, uh, entrepreneurship, a variety of great business programs. Um, and that's, that's my space. So, I'll, you know, if you want to learn more about place I work and opportunities in this community. Yeah. Check out the university website. Sounds great. And Justin, is there anything else you'd like to say? No, just thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. And, uh, you know, I was, I've enjoyed getting to know your show and, and what you're doing. And I think it's wonderful. I appreciate it. And I appreciate your interest in Fireline. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I know that you have a lot on your plate. You just talked about some of that. So uh, I'm honored that you were able to carve out some time to talk to me today. So thank you. We live in a world where sound bites dominate and true understanding is shrinking. Nature's Archive podcast digs a little bit deeper, hoping to help the world understand nature just a little bit more. I hope that this podcast has planted a seed of interest that will grow into something special for you. I record, produce, edit, and publish a show by myself as a personal passion. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and then please turn around and share this episode with a friend or a family member that you think might like it. I'm not asking for money or donations, just a gift of sharing. Thanks for your support. You can also follow me on Instagram at Nature's Archive or Facebook, also Nature's Archive. In addition to sharing information about podcasts at those locations, I also share some of my photography and some short explanations of what I'm seeing. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for guests or topics for me to cover, please email me at naturesarchivepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. And one last word, I want to make sure to give credit to the music that you hear in the podcast. The opening song is called Fearless First by Kevin McLeod, and the closing song is called Beauty Flow, also by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.filmmusic.io.